his side In the darkness is the light Out of the shadows of my life Welcome once again to a very special episode of the So Weird Podcast. I'm Zach. I'm Kat. I'm Emily. I'm Kathy. And tonight we have a very special guest, a Leo-winning actor on stage and screen for over 40 years. You've seen his face in films like Man of Steel or Grave Encounters, in popular television series like Legion, Smallville, Supernatural, Fargo, Dirk Gently. Or perhaps you've even heard his voice in shows like My Little Pony or Black Lagoon. But if you're listening to this podcast, you probably most recognize him as John Kane, a.k.a. Papa Bear, from two very memorable episodes of So Weird. We are very pleased to introduce actor and musician Mr. Mackenzie Gray. How are you doing tonight? I'm great, Zach. How are you? Oh, I'm well. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you for a very nice introduction. That's great. Remember all the work I did, and then you know we'll throw it in there somewhere. <laughs> Well, let's get right to the questions. Uh, my very first question here, IMDb says that your very first screen credit was an episode of Forever Night, which is another show I remember watching. And I'm going to use that as a springboard to ask you what drew you to acting in the first place, or how did you get into the business? Uh, I've been uh, interested in acting since I was 12 or 13. I, I, I formed a theater company a group in high school, and we wrote our own plays and did things. Um, when I was 15, I was taken uh, or introduced by letter to Christopher Plummer. Um, he, my uncle was great friends with him, and he wrote me a letter. And my mother also wrote a letter because she knew him. And I went to see him in Cerno de Bergerac in Toronto. He was, he was playing Cyrano at the Royal Alexander Theatre, which is a very famous historical theatre. And I, I had wanted to act, and they thought, well, maybe I should go and talk to Chris Plummer, and he could tell me about it and see what he thinks. So he made time for me backstage he took, after the play. He had many friends waiting. They had to wait. He took me back and showed me where they did all the special effects and so on, and, and took me back to his dressing room and showed me how he took off the putty nose, you know, the prosthetic nose and so on. Mm. And basically he asked me, you know, he said, do you need to be an actor? And I said, it was an odd question. I was 14, I think I was maybe just 15. And I said, uh, well, I don't know if I need to be it, but it's what I want to do. And he said, well, that's a start. And then he sort of went into a very detailed thing about what acting was and how much you had to give 100% to it. And if it was something you didn't need to do and didn't feel the need to do, that you should step away. And he said, you know, it's a very small room. And there's not a lot of room for people, and many people want in. But if you're not really feeling it, you don't want to be there, you should step away. And if you really feel the need to come back, then you'll know you need it. But if not, then go off and do something else. There are many other ways you can dabble and have a hand in it, but it's a serious profession, and it's a serious calling, and you need to know that you are serious about it. And that means 100% dedication. It means even if you're doing other jobs or other things, you've got to focus on being an actor and being in the in the theater and being in the business and he, he said do you think you can make that commitment and i was pretty terrified meeting him to begin with <laughs> so he was very intense he was looking at me this closely <laughs> and i thought about it and i said yes i can and he said well then you promise me that you'll give it a hundred percent all the time at every chance that you get and if you feel the need it not is not there you'll step away can you make me that promise? And I thought about it and I said, yes, I can. 
So he put his hand out and said, well, let's shake hands on it. And I look forward to sharing a stage with you someday. So I was bitten. And I've kept that promise to him. And I've worked with him twice. And we've shared a stage. And we've shared TV shows. And we've been on, last time was on the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. And he had signed a poster for me of himself as the Duke of Wellington in the film Waterloo. And he was quite amazed that I'd gotten this poster. And, you know, how did you get this? And where did you get it? I, I think I'd stolen it from a bookstore. But at any rate, um, he signed it for me. And uh, it's gone with me everywhere I've lived in, in London, in, uh, in America, in, you know, where Toronto, where I'm from. And it's gone with me everywhere. And so when I worked with him on a show called Counter-Strike, I brought it in and reminded him of this conversation we'd had. And he was amazed that I kept it. He said, you haven't kept it. Oh, my God. He was knocked out. He brought the whole cast and everybody over. And look at this. Look at this. He said, I'm responsible for his life of misery and <laughs> pain. And I said, well, I haven't really had much of that. He said, well, what are you doing wrong? <laughs> so so he, uh, we posed for pictures, and we had a wonderful time. We've stayed in touch. And then when Parnassus came along, I, didn't, I had a very tiny part in it, um, but which I took just because I all my life wanted to work with Terry Gilliam. And my agent said, but it's two lines, it's nothing, you know, do you want to, I said, it's Terry Gilliam, you know, like, mm. uh, we holding a bag of fish, I don't care. And, <laughs> and my scenes were with Tom Waits and Chris Plummer, which was amazing. And, uh, and Tom Waits, and I just toured the Tom Waits rock opera, The Black Rider, and it was the only one that Tom allowed was our production. And so Tom and I had lots to talk about. And then when I saw Chris again, he, I told him about the poster, and I said, well, I've had it framed since I saw you last, but I'll bring it in. And he, he didn't really believe it, and he, he was quite moved. He said, wow, it really has meant all this much to you all this time. And I said, yeah, it really did. It's, it's you know, it kick-started me to being serious about being an actor. So from a passing interest or a fun interest or maybe an interest just to show off, uh, it became a serious interest from that point on. And... Uh, and I, I've been fortunate in that I've made good choices wherever I've gone that have led me further to acting. Sometimes it didn't get me on stage, but it got me good training or meeting good people or whatever. And uh, so then I went to U of T, the University of Toronto, and I had an amazing, very famous drama program. And um, there I was mentored by some great Canadian theater artists and uh, who got me jobs in the summer. So I was working in the theater while I was going to school. And while I was in school, I did 14 lead roles in plays or supporting roles in plays. I directed three plays and I stage managed and was a lighting designer and a set designer. So I used my four years really thoroughly. Mm. You know, I didn't sleep much, but you know. And uh, so it, it was that 100% dedication and being a lifer and giving it all that I could. So that's how I got started in acting. And then I'd been doing some acting in England, um, piecemeal little bits here and there. And then when I came back to Toronto, that's when I went like full bore. And when I came out of school, I got into one of the biggest plays in Toronto in the biggest theater, um, pretty much right out of school. And that launched me in the theater. So. You know, and in, a lot of Canadian actors will tell you this. We start in theatre, most of us. We start in theatre school or we start in drama school or universities, and the focus is theatre. And 
in the theater, you really learn how to develop characters and develop an arc and develop understanding the whole story and how to, you also develop patience and so on and so forth. And so when you go into film, uh, the f tradition of film, particularly in Toronto, was the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation did a lot of series and there were local, you know, independent films and so on. But we worked our way into good roles. Um, but you have a broad scope of, of experience to bring to the table. And I found that American producers and American directors love the fact that we have theater. It's not, they don't have that thing, oh, theater, you'll be too big, you know, you can't be on screen. They know that theater actors are well trained. And so they, they, we have a legitimacy with Americans that a lot of um, other actors may not have. And uh, so the transition into film is often very easy for Canadian actors. Well, I actually had a question about uh, Parnassus, so I'm glad you, you answered that right there. So, <laughs> oh yeah, well, Parnassus was. I can tell you some something interesting about that was uh, it. It was a small role, but it's got a cinematic first, according to Terry Gilliam, and he was so pleased with this mistake that became something that even though it cost them thousands and thousands of dollars to rotoscope and do different things. He put it in the trailer and he had me at TIFF at the Toronto Film Festival on the red carpet because according to Terry, I am the first actor on screen to have his mouth turned into an anus. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a dubious distinction, I must say, but you know, <laughs> but I was doing the monk thing and I, you know, he's trying to tell the never ending story. It can't be cut off. And just so you know, Terry told me that Dr. Parnassus is an entirely autobiographical film in the sense that it's about a director and a writer and a creator who's trying to create his, his thing and believes that the world will end if he doesn't create his story. And so it's really about Terry. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, at any rate, I, in the, the scene, I get dropped down on my flying carpet, which was a four foot drop and it hurt a lot. And I just spring up and start telling saying this gibberish story. And when Tom Waite zaps me, I'm supposed to freeze my mouth and I can't make a sound. Well, did a couple of takes and in one of the takes, I went <clears throat> and it came out like a fart. And, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and Terry said, no, 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 we, we can't have, it's no, no noise. You just gotta stop it quietly. He said, I mean, it sounded like a fart. And then he went, oh my God. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, great idea, and he cut, and all his team around were going, "Oh, Terry, no, no, no! <laughs> what if when he speaks and he's Tom stops him, his mouth turns into an anus, and that's all he can do is fart?" <laughs> you know, totally all of it. And I'll say, "Oh, but Terry, we've shot a day and a half, and we've already got this stuff. We'll have to rotoscope. I'll get a camera. We'll film it. I'll put. Give me a camera. We'll do all three. We'll we'll spin it around so we can do, get shots and." And so they stopped everything and we got an extra day and they filmed all this madness. And then I got to go in to do special effects so they could rotoscope me and do all this stuff to turn my mouth into an anus. And uh, I hadn't been, I hadn't been on, on the set for a, a week and a half or something. And I came in and I had a little pork pie hat because they'd shaved my head. It was, he insisted that all the monks have shaved heads even though we were all wearing hats. That's how thorough... <laughs> Terry Gilliam is. And um, anyway, I came in, I had a pork pie hat, and I was wearing a velvet jacket, and I looked a little Tom Waits-ish, I guess. And there was a guy sitting on a tall actor chair, and there's Terry and a bunch of people, and Terry 
calls to me and he says, ah, oh, Mackenzie, uh, what are you doing for us today? And I said, well, today I'm, um, I'm going to be put on a disc and spun around with uh, lights all over me and they're going to take 4,000 photographs of me so they can turn my mouth into an anus. And the guy in the actor chair <laughs> fell over laughing and literally fell off the chair. And he looks down and he's laughing. I said, and I looked down, I couldn't see who it was. And I said, no, I'm quite serious. That's what we're doing today. And, and he looked up and it was Jude Law. Oh my goodness. And, and Jude <laughs> says, oh my God, is that, are you serious? And I said, I'm serious. And he said, hi, I'm Jude. Uh, <laughs> and all I said was, I know. <laughs> but anyway, that day Jude was sent to special effects as well. So we spent the whole day together and I got to hang out with Jude Law all day doing these crazy, you know, the stuff to do the special effects. And um, it, which was a real treat. He's a lovely man. It was very special, you know. At any rate, uh, Terry was having trouble with the monks. You know, those scenes with the monks were all on the flying carpets. Right. And they, you know, they're background performers and some of them were very gifted. Some of them were actors taking smaller roles. Others are just people like to do it. And they were all, completely uneven on the, and the first AD was trying to call, okay, down, now up, because they're all supposed to be doing these ohms, you know, like ohm, and we're all saying ohm vey, which is kind of funny, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, he, they were going down and up, and they weren't really, they weren't in unison, like they're supposed to be going down and up and down and up, and they were all over the place, and the first AD was trying to call the, cr the crane shot, and he's trying to call the guys, and he was getting very frustrated, and I've done a lot of dance and I've done, I've done military drill and I thought, you know, this is very easy if you call it and tell them what to do. So when we took a break, I said, do you want me to, uh, do you want me to can I help you out? Can I do something here? Because I can get them in unison in three seconds. And he said, if you can get this shower into order, I'll, you know, he was, he was not very complimentary about them. And um, so I gave him a thing where I said, all right, this is how we're going to do it. You're going to say it with me. We're going to do it and follow me. It's going to be down, two, three, four two, three, four. So when I say down, that's when you start and you count it to four counts. Well, we got it in three seconds. They were amazing. And Terry saw this and he jumped up from his chair and said, Eureka, you're the king of the monkeys. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I said, well, let's see if we can do it when I tell them not to make any noise. They can keep it in their heads. So we did it you know, down to three, four. So when I say rolling, just say it in your heads, but don't say it out loud. And they did. They were great. And we got it. So Terry was very uh, pleased with me and um, allowed me to stay on set and come to set on other days to watch what was going on and be involved. And it was a really happy experience for me. And um, he signed my Monty Python book that I had, which was amazingly lovely. And um, uh, so for a tiny little two-line part, I was put in the trailer worldwide, cinematic first, put on the red carpet at TIFF, and uh, got to work and meet and become a friend with Terry Gilliam. So sometimes taking those little parts can be very special, you know? Wow, that, what a great story. Yeah. That is yeah. amazing. <laughs> now, you just told us that part of being an actor is always giving 100%. Yeah. And I think that as John Kane and So Weird, you brought such an iconic character to life. He really is one of these standout characters for only being in two episodes. It feels like he's very much present in the series. Thank so you. how did you enhance Papa Bear, John Keane, to take the role and put your own spit on him? Is there anything that you specifically added to the character that made him the iconic character that he is? Uh, I think 
I, uh, I cleaned him up a bit from what their original concept was. And when I read for it, it's an interesting story about getting the role. I had read for it and I'd played a few rock stars in, and the casting director, Stuart Aikens, knew me from before and brought me in. And I, I came in kind of looking like I did in the, in the film, in the, t in the TV series. And, um, but he was supposed to be really quite knocked down, like, like he'd been through a lot, you know, and he was kind of just building him back. And I think they wanted him to be, a, you know, John could tell you, but originally it was, you know, quite a, a rehab case, you know. And, uh, and in the audition room was Long John Baldry, the famous British blues rocker. Oh, love who, him. Who was a lovely man, you know, six foot nine or whatever he was, he's a huge guy. And he had, in, you know, guys who started in his band were Rod Stewart and Elton John and, you know, and all these people were his protégés. And I saw John and I went, oh my God, what's he, I'm never going to get this. Look at the, the real thing here, you know. And, and, and Long John Baldry had, had burned out and come back and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, and he, he had a kind of take on it, you know, and he, he kept thinking I looked, I looked too much like Mick Jagger, you know, and he was, giving, he was teasing me a bit. But he's a, he was a lovely man. And anyway, I thought when we went in, I, I wouldn't get it. But then I got pinned or, or, you know, penciled in or whatever. And I was shocked that I'd beaten Long John Baldry for it, you know, because he was the legit thing. But then we didn't hear anything for the longest time. And they said, well, we're going through changes. And I said, the first episode's coming up. And, you know, I, I've got other work offered to me. What are we doing? And they said, well, we'll, we'll see. We're going to try and push that episode. We're going to try and change it. And this went on for a month or so, like long, longer. And then the date came and went that that episode was going. And I said, well, I guess they hired somebody else. And I totally forgot about it. <laughs> and I was downtown in Vancouver. And I was, I, I'd just come back from Toronto where I'd been doing some work. And I ran into Stuart Aiken in the street. He said, oh, you're in town. I said, yes, I'm in town. Yeah, he said, oh, good. Because, you know, finally that whole meatloaf thing's over. And they've gone back to the original choice, which is you. So, you know, I'm glad you're in town. Because got, we need to get you in fast. I had no idea what he's talking about. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, so, so weird. I said, oh, I thought I gave that up. I thought it was done. He said, no, no, no. And it turns out, from what I understand, Disney owned the back catalog of Meatloaf's music. And they thought they, thought they could sell Meatloaf's music by having Meatloaf play the part. Meatloaf's a good actor, you know, but he didn't want to do it. He wasn't interested in being on a series and doing that. And he, he, it didn't interest him. And I think because Meatloaf had gotten his act together, he didn't want to play a burnout. You know, for whatever it was, these were little snippets I got from different people. And so I thought, well, whatever. They didn't use Long John Baldry and they didn't use Meatloaf. So, all right. Woo <laughs> and uh, so I went in. So I had, I had maybe a week to prepare it, you know, to get my idea of who it was. So I thought about the great rock guitarists, you know, that were English and they, they wanted English. And I thought of Jimmy Page and, uh, and some of the great, guitarists who were all had been burned out like jimmy never completely burned out but you know he had his rough times but i thought i'd make him an intelligent guy who knew that he'd messed up and i thought let me play him like he's a guy who knows what the edge is but around the kids and around you know cara or you know the you know uh, and and mckenzie um so you know molly if you like that he's not gonna be the re the 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 wild guy anymore he can't help himself sometimes but 
that lovely scene that I had with with Kara in the at the end of the first episode I'm in, mm -hmm. telling her her dad would have been proud of her and everything else. I really loved that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes I've ever been in. And mm -hmm. they were trying to say, well, where's the John Kane in that? What, what what can you do? You know, like you know, it's very tender and it's thoughtful, but where's John that's going to make her see her dad as well? And I was thinking, I wasn't sure, and then I, I said, well, can I have the scarf in the scene? And so at the end of it, I kind of threw the scarf, like a little bit of panache, like, there. Mm -hmm. and, and that actually made her smile and, and you know, through tears. And so there were little touches like that that I allowed the, the flamboyance of John to be there, but I kept him in the place that in the here and now, he's, he's doing okay and he's making good. You know, so when he's all broken down, he's had the heart, attack and the heart transplant and so on the idea was that he's really worn down his hair is a mess and he's 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 struggling to find who he was and so he can't play the guitar because you know the heart that's been given to him has no musical skills and he's lost his actual you know sensory skills and so on and uh and that was harder to play because they wanted him really rough and tumble but i thought if he got angry and frustrated that would be the old john because mm -hmm. the old john would have the temper tantrums and go off and do drugs or let himself burn out or he'd do the guitar solo that would never end or whatever so i mm -hmm. tried to remember the old john and put him into the new right wow, wow. So, i never would have guessed that background information about meatloaf that is amazing <laughs> yeah pretty special you you were definitely the better choice. Picture <laughs> anybody else playing John Kane. Well, that's it's very kind. I think you know, Long John Baldry or Meatloaf or whoever would have made whatever it made their own. I'm sure it'd be it'd be fine. But I'm very happy with me and Mackenzie Phillips and I are friends to this day, and I really really loved. You know, we were the two Max, and our our first AD on the show was also Mackenzie or Max. So we had Mac. He was Mac. He was. He was a Mac, I forget, and I and I became uh, Mac Daddy. <laughs> you, know, you know, so so we had three Macs on that show, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it, it, you know, it was a it was a special show. It had a great, very special feeling. And um, Larry Sugar, I can't say enough about what kind of a producer he is because he cares deeply about his shows. He gets good people in, and he he pays attention to what's going on in his shows and he cares about the content and about what's happening. And uh, he, he, I worked for Larry on a number of shows, um, Dead Man's Gun, um, First Wave, So Weird, uh, The Collector. And I can't say enough about how important it is on a show to have a good producer, you know, and John and Ali are great writers and they're friends to this day as well. You know, it was, it became a big family. You know, mm -hmm. so, um, you know, and uh, anyway, there, there, I wish we'd gotten the third episode, which was the first one they were going to do, because uh, it was it looked like it would have been a lot of fun, but they canceled it and they didn't rewrite it and redo it. What um, was the third episode? Or it was going to be the first one. I don't know. I don't know. Oh. John and Allie could tell you, but it, it was introducing John Kane. Oh, okay. And, uh, and there was a lot of stuff about the dad, I think, about memories of the dad. Okay. That's oh, that sounds like it would have been so cool. Yeah, it would, you know. And, you know, funny enough, when it, they had very little time to figure out who John Kane was and what he was and everything else. And, and uh, 
so I wore a lot of my own clothes because I had rock and roll clothes. <laughs> so I wore a lot of my own stuff as John. And in the rock, in the rock video, I'm wearing the leather pants and it's all mine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, Love it. Yeah, so. Um, yeah. Well, since you're talking about the development of John Kane's character, uh, John Kane has an excellent British accent, but you aren't speaking with a British accent now. Um, your Wikipedia says you have dual citizenship. Between yeah. the United Kingdom and Canada. Yeah, I'm a UK yeah. citizen, and I, I was born in Toronto. I was my, I had when I was about five or six, I had a Scottish accent, I guess, from my dad and from being in Scotland as a boy. And then it kind of, I never had a particularly hard Canadian accent. When I moved to England, uh, in, when I was in my teens, I over you know years and training, I I had a, developed a fairly strong English accent. When I came back to Toronto, it kind of stayed around, and people would always say, you're going to lose that accent, you're going to lose it, it's going to work. And the very first roles that I got in movies were all English parts, you know. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and um, it, it wasn't an issue one way or the other. But over time, doing more American things and so on, you've got to get it. So Americans still think I sound very English. And I guess it's my inflection here and there. But in in uh, in... In, on the series that brought me to Vancouver, which was called The Net, um, it was I was playing an American secret service guy, and uh, uh, dark and evil, and um, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it just uh, there's more American work in Vancouver than there is local Canadian work or, or um, co-productions. Like in in Toronto, there's a lot of English Canadian co-productions and Irish Canadian and German Canadian, whatever. And, you know, they, they do shows like Handmaid's Tale there and so on, but they also do Orphan Black or they, or they do um, Vikings and all these shows are all out of Toronto. And uh, here we tend to do more very American stuff. We do a lot of Hallmark things. We do a lot of Disney. And it's, they want you to be a kind of generic American. Um, so over time, your accent changes and it changes to where you're at, you know. But you know, I, I'm sure if I went to live in France for a while, I'd probably – Stop speaking like a French person, you know. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Um, I, I have Australian friends here who've never ever lost their Australian accent. You know, it's like it's chiseled into their microchip. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, and they've been here 15 years and they've never done an Australian role. Like, say, ah, sport has a guy. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but but, and, but accents are easy for me. I've done I've done accents a lot, and. Um, you know, in Man of Steel, they asked me if I could do German or, or Australian when I did a callback. It was a very interesting audition. Um, and uh, and I, I just played a German, and I actually had to speak German in the film. So I said, well, I can do either. I can do one or the other. And I did the German, and they loved it. And they said, that's it. And um, so accents come naturally to me, but the English accent's pretty um, pretty easy because it's a natural place for my, my, my voice to sit, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, my question is, uh, in the those two episodes, you worked with Mackenzie Phillips, who you said you're still friends with today. Yes. Uh, you worked with Kara and Patrick Levis, who played Jack. So how was it working with all them and the other cast? Um, they were they were great kids. There was one kid in the show who was, let's just say, needed a good spanking. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, and and I was not the person. I was warned when I got there. He'll be tricky. Don't pay attention to that. And I never badmouth people, so I won't say who it was. But there was one actor who had a, a particularly, um, you know, kind of little hold himself attitude, and um, he was good at what he did. He wasn't a bad actor anyway. But um, but everybody else were lovely. Kara was delightful. She was delightful to work with. Her parents were on set, or her mother was on set a lot. And I got to know her, and you know, and the, you know, playing essentially her uncle, and um, and I loved all the kids. They were lovely, lovely, nice kids to work with, and they were all very talented. They'd been at it, you know, for a while at that point, and they knew who their characters were, and um, I just thought they were terrific, you know. And the one who was difficult, he was good on set, like he did his stuff, but he just he's a little full of himself, and uh, as that happens to young actors, they get. They start to believe their press agents' press or whatever, and you know, get a little ahead of themselves. But I, I've, I've since heard from other shows that he's been on that he's been terrific. So, you know, mm-hmm. those things pass. But in terms of my experience on it, it was all very good. You know, great crew, fabulous crew. You know, um, lots of birthday parties and things on set. There was always something going on that was, you know, fun to celebrate. And you know, so it was a, it was a good family. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, my next question here, all the, the girls have got all the so weird questions. I like to dig into IMDb and find other weird things to talk about. <laughs> and uh, Lots of weird in my world. You know, so. Yeah. Um, well, you've worked on some big budget projects like Man of Steel or Warcraft. How yeah. does that compare to acting in television or smaller films? Um, well, you know, the big machinery and the big films, the, the stakes are raised because it's so much money. You know, you, you, anything, small indie film, whatever it might be, you've got to turn up and be ready to work. You, you know, you can't, it's like what Chris Palmer said, you've got to be 100% ready to go. And you have to be professional. Um, it, it, it gets a bit scary in the big films because you can be lost in the shuffle a bit and you you really got to, if you aren't comfortable with something or you've got to speak out, you, you got to choose your moments much more carefully, you know, because there's a lot at stake, you know, and if you think that on every TV show, like an average TV show or um, a medium sized movie or something that every take is $10,000, right? With the, you think you break it down to the crew, the cost of the studio, the rental, of the equipment, the actor's salaries, all that stuff, you know, it breaks down to a lot of money per, if not per take, per scene, you know? And so you've always, you know, you don't want to be the person that messes up the take because you were unprepared. If you do it naturally or something happens, everyone's forgiving and it's all right. But you've got to really be on your game. And in the big ones, it's, you know, it's it's a million dollars a take or a scene, you know? So, because these things are 250, 300 million dollars. And so there's, there's just a heightened awareness that it, time is precious and time is money. And yet, often on those things, they're a little more flexible, but, oh, let's try this, let's try that. On Man of Steel, they were they were not as flexible, but that's because Zack Snyder storyboards it within an inch of his life. He knows what he's going to do. He he knows where he's going to go, but within the scene, you're allowed to play. And uh, so I enjoyed that very much. Um, Warcraft was a big beast of a film, I caught, you know, it was like, you know, we had giant cranes inside that that round table thing which is real there was no cgi there that was all built and 
you know, you know, they'll say, well, you know, make sure that you're looking just slightly ahead of the crane and the crane will go too far. And you go, well, I, I can, I'm not looking at anybody anymore. And what do I do? Um, but uh, Duncan Jones was wonderful as a director. And he really, really, um, you know, that was a big monster of a film. And you've also got with the gaming films, the gamers are so crazy about authenticity and and that this thing and if it's if it's a sidebar and if it's a side character what are they doing in the main story you know they get they get nuts and i don't mean it in a disparaging way but they they care so much about the game the way they've seen the game and how they want it to be that they go in with this huge expectation and they're often disappointed even though the film may be great and the film is is doing as much as you can with a video game you know, video games now, I, I'm told, gamers really want more story, they want more character, and they want all these things, you know, and which is, uh, which is good. But in a film, you've got to make it make sense as a story, as a film. So there's a lot riding on it, you know, but there's, you know, it's interesting when the robes that I wore as the Lordarian king uh, or minister, or whatever, they, they, they changed my title three or four times. I was the Lordarian yeah. king. I was Lordarian delegate, then I was the Lordarian minister, then I was Lord Lordarian, and it, it changes. But I had the fabric I was wearing was in, imported from Italy. It was extremely heavy. It was beautiful fabric. It must have cost thousands of dollars to make that costume. And the woman playing my wife, um, uh, she was uh, uh, she was in, in extraordinary fabrics and so on. And so. All of that stuff you don't get on a small thing where they've gone to Value Village and thrown a couple of bed sheets on you, you know. Um, okay, then maybe not that bad, but you know. <laughs> but, uh, but the big films, you're always knocked out by the, the you know, the, the, how much they have. And, you know, I, I'll tell you, any film, whether it's a small film, indie film, big, big film, monstrous TV series, I'm always amazed when we go out to the middle of nowhere, you know, like out in the country or someplace. And there's a whole city we've built, you know, out of trailers and trucks and generator trucks and cables and stuff like that. It's like an army. And it's, it's a staggering achievement. And so I'm excited every time I go to set, you know, because it's pretty amazing to think of the stuff we pull off and do, you know. And it, you have to be a little mad to be in our business, but it's, it's it's extremely exciting when you go to a big set, especially in something like Warcraft. All those sets were built. The forest was built. They built the forest in a warehouse, you know, that 12 horses could run through. And you think, oh, my God. It's, you know, it's like the Hollywood backlot, you know, and, and that's always exciting, you know. Uh, so, But small films, you know, I like the fact that you get more involved in some ways and you, you know, there's more input. Um, if you can think of a clever way to do things, you know, uh, uh, you know, when I filmed my film noir that won awards and went all, you know, went to Cannes and was bought by the CBC and so on. I had three days to film it and five days to edit it. It was part of a, a competition program from the Directors Guild called Crazy Eights. And I had, you know, nine locations. It was a period film. I had hundreds of extras. It was a hugely ambitious film. It, everybody was pulling their way. Everybody was teaming together. I had 10 makeup artists and makeup and hair artists. I had four costumers. And I, you know, I had all these people who come out to work on it. But we, we made this kind of army. And that's just as exciting as working on the big ones, you know.
more so for me because I was directing it, you know. But um, you know, but it, I think uh, yeah, I love being in the big ones. I bring them on. I love them. I love even more, you know. And uh, yeah, Man of Steel was a great experience, and uh, I got to you know I didn't work with Russell, but I got to watch Russell Crowe work. I got to work with Henry Cavill, who was lovely. Amy Adams, you know, uh, just really fantastic people. And uh, Anja Trau, the German actress who plays Feora, we, you know, we've become lifelong friends, you know, and uh, a very special relationship. So the big films, you still have to be a family to make them work. You know, did that answer your question? I don't. I, I think it did. Way off on a sidebar there, but you know. Yeah. And how do you find the experience of directing? I, I love it. I love it. I was trained to direct in the theater when I was at University of Toronto. And I've directed when I was in high school, the plays that my group put together, I directed. And I, I, love, I love painting a picture. I went to art school. I've learned about painting. My father was an art dealer and designer. And I love painting pictures through film. And I love telling stories through film. Um, I've got a couple of things coming up that, uh, that will be happening soon. And I'm really, really looking forward to it because I haven't really fully directed since um, 2014, really. And uh, I produced a feature film in that time, but uh, the last time I directed, and I had so much fun, I really loved doing it. And uh, I love keeping a happy set, and I love making a great shot. And I, love, I love telling the story, and, uh, you know, I love doing it. So it's, it's very rewarding for me to do it. And as, as somebody who has directed, you know, it's very interesting when you see a director that you're working with and you think, oh, there'd be a better way to do this, you know, they're having trouble doing this. You've got to be careful that you don't step in and say, oh, you know, you should try this. <laughs> because not always met very nicely. But sometimes you can, and sometimes you can say, but you offer it as the actor, you say, what if I did this and turn my head this way, would that help you? Oh, there it is, you know. And so you can help by suggesting it as an actor, but you got to really respect the space of the director, you know, that you're working with, you know, but you know, if they're sitting there going, I don't know what to do with this scene. Oh my God. Well, you know, step in, but step in lightly, you know. Now, speaking of taking direction, a question I've had for a while is I was wondering if you could tell us about what was happening behind the scenes when you guys were filming the music video and your second episode for land of the free. There were no lyrics ever written for the song. And you shared with us a picture from behind the scenes of that. Yes. Now for shooting that, were you given a lot of direction or were you free to kind of make up your own moves? Uh, it was, they gave me the song to learn uh, so I could do the fingering on the guitar because I do play guitar. And, but it, it was crazy, crazy. And so I had to look like I was really playing it. So I had to know where it was going on this, this, the, the fretboard of the guitar. And, uh, and they got me a guitar that, you know, it, it wasn't plugged in. So it was like doing a video anyway. But they had various things they wanted me to do. And they wanted me to go wild. The idea is that John goes out of control on the, the video, but it's all funny and whatever. And so they had different things for me to be doing and, and sort of standing with, with uh, Mackenzie and Chris. And, but then they had these walls for me to kick down and, and, and a, a fence they wanted me to break over and fall against the fence and so on and do stuff. 
and they said, you know, just just go wild and just a minute, but you got to land here, you know, for the camera, like you know, hit that mark right there. And uh, so I was allowed to do stuff, but I had to still play the fingering to the playback, and then I had to kick things over, and they didn't always go the way you wanted to. So I would land, and I actually tore the leather pants, ripped the knee, <laughs> and, uh, and they, they loved it. Did we get that? Did we get that? Oh yeah, you know, they didn't. I, are you okay? No. <laughs> They never ask that. It's not a slag on so weird. You know, I once fell down into the bowels of a ship on a, uh, a Hallmark miniseries called The Voyage of the Unicorn, big fantasy thing. And I played the King of the Trolls. And we had a huge rogue wave that hit and moved the ship over. And there was a big fight scene going on on the deck. And I literally fell into the hole of the ship, like, you know, 14 feet into the hole of the ship. And they dropped, and one of the guys holding a little camera. He had dropped down. He was disguised, and they all went running over. Is the camera okay? Is the camera all right? <laughs> and I was lying at the. I'd really hit hard at the bottom. I was in armor, and I and I said, "I'm okay. Yeah, it's all right. Don't mind me." And I went, oh my God! How'd you end up in there? Like they never ask about the actor. Is the camera okay, right? You know, or did you get that shot? You know. I was almost thrown off a horse once. I managed to stay on it, but the horse was frightened by fire. And it reared up, and then the DP, who was German, the, he said, actor, actor. He could never remember my name or anybody's name. And said, <laughs> he said, can you do this with the horse? Again, it was magnificent, but it went out of frame. I said, that with the horse. I did, like, the horse got scared. I don't know horse. Said, no, it was great, but we need to, we can't lose you in the frame. You know, I didn't know it was going to do that. I said, no, I'm not going to do it again. I said, like, no, it's not going to happen. You know, <laughs> you know he's going to say, put the flame closer to the horse, make it happen. You know, like, oh my God. No, they don't care. But at any rate, um, back to John Cain and uh, so weird. Uh, so when I think the fence came down or something ripped apart, the knee ripped open. And uh, I did cut myself, but, you know, we kept going. And uh, and then they had a thing where they wanted me to kick something down, and I I, I kicked it down, and uh, and I think I tore the leather pants again. Like the pants were really tight, and they were not surviving <laughs> all that bad activity. But it they kind of said do this, and they set it up. I had no. The only thing within it was arching my back and making you know rock star moves with the guitar and stuff. But it was mm -hmm. they, they knew what they wanted, and they put it together. I never saw the video uh, until after the show. You know, till the episode came out. Mm -hmm. So, well, you mentioned that you play guitar, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experiences as a musician. Um, I saw on Wikipedia you were in a band called the Fridge Stickers. Yes. And, uh, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I, well, the Fridge Stickers was a band in Toronto. Uh, we were all actors or film people, and uh, we put a band together for an Amnesty International benefit no an actors fund benefit sorry first time was for the actors fund of canada and it's a it's an organization that gives money to actors in the and not just actors but anybody in the business it's pretty helpful and we i had said yes to doing this and then i didn't really have a band so we put a band together and uh we played the other two of the other bands didn't show up so we had to play for five hours and so i would just say because we all knew the same songs, and yeah, I'd say, okay, uh, Dizzy Miss Lizzie and A, and uh, okay, and we would, anyway, we played for the five hours, and it was pretty great, and so we really enjoyed it. So we said, let's keep the band and let's do gigs and do things. So we did 
Amnesty International benefit, and that got a huge audience for us. And um, so we were playing in clubs in Toronto just for fun. And on a Tuesday night, we get 300 people in the club. So all of a sudden, we became very popular. And we didn't do any original music. It was just covers, but we were fun, and we dressed up, and we had fun. And, and um, so a band that was just starting out really didn't want to have the Tuesday night slot. And we'd gotten, at this point, the Saturday night, because you earn it after a while in a club. And we were asked, would we trade with this band so they could get industry people to come and see them because they were looking for a record contract. And they were called the Bare Naked Ladies. And so, so we became buddies with them. We traded the slot, and they got their record deal. And we did the Tuesday night and filled it with loads of people, so everybody was happy. And um, there was another band called Pursuit of Happiness, and we got to know them a bit. And they copied the fact that we dressed up and looked all 60s and had fun, and they did a 70s funk thing. And um, so we were quite popular in Toronto. Um, which is odd for a cover band because cover bands usually play airport lounges and weddings and stuff. But we played clubs and we had a lot of fun. And our concerts were always, our gigs were always four or five hours long. They're all ridiculous. But we just played a lot of rock and roll and got people dancing. So I, I started playing guitar when I was about 13, 12 or 13. I was huge, and I still am a huge fan of the Beatles. Um, they influenced me more than anything. That I can think of, and I was, I, I even made myself a wooden guitar when I was, you know, ten or twelve years old. It didn't sound very good, but I made it. And so my parents realized that I liked a guitar, so I got an, they got me an acoustic guitar, and then I started playing more and more. And I was, I would say, very limited until I met other people in high school who played and say, "Oh, you do this, and you do this, and you do that." So I got better. And then when I moved to England, I. Um, and I sent you guys one of those pictures of the, the young John Kane. Mm -hmm. I, I had that really beautiful guitar, and I played in street parties and street bands and so on, and I got better. So then when I came back to Toronto, I didn't play a lot, but played enough. And then when the band happened, you, you start playing every night, or you get these house band gigs or whatever, and then you get good. And then I started writing songs. I'd written songs here and there, but I wrote songs in the mid-'80s that I just started writing songs and some of them were quite good and then I, some of them were not, you know. Um, but they started me getting into the idea of writing songs for things. And uh, so I've written songs for plays, I've written songs for films. I wrote a musical that uh, was called Math Out Loud and it was a, a, a thing to get kids interested in math. And they tried these sketches and comedy things going to schools and they were limited, you know, limited effectiveness. And I was, a friend of mine said, I know who you should talk to. You should talk to Mackenzie. He's, he's, he's written ballets and operas. And by that point, I had. And so I thought, well, how would you make it interesting for these kids? Because, you know, it's, and I thought, what if it was like an acid trip, like a magical mystery tour, <laughs> like the mathical mystery tour, which is what we called it for a while. And so I, I, I had big screens and stuff. They had all the money I wanted. They said, whatever you want to do, we'll do it. And so... I started writing songs for it, so I wanted to have it punctuated by music. And you know, you think you're, you know, from grade eighth grade to eleventh grade, and you're going to a theater and you're going to see a, a play about math. You know, most kids would be go, "Oh, kill me now!" Right? And you know, or, or like, "Oh, you know, at least we're out of school, whatever." So I wanted to shake it up so they know they weren't getting a normal thing. 
So I wrote a song called Mathical Mystery Tour, and it was this crazy loud, you know, psychedelic rock song. And it opened a, you know, blazing on the speakers, like almost deafening. And we had these projections of an M.C. Escher painting. And, it, and we had the figures in it animated. So it took a lot of fractal work to do that. And then actors started coming out of the screens in the costumes of the, the fractal figures and doing patterns and everything else while these two kids get lost in this painting. And basically the premise was a bit like, like uh, Wizard of Oz, that these kids have fallen asleep in class and they've woken up in this acid, crazy dream inside an M.C. Escher world. And they go on this tour, this mathematical mystery tour, where they're taken back to Cleopatra's Egypt, where they invented pie and discovered pie, if you like. And then they went to all these different things where they, they learned from people about the origins of, of everything from, uh, you know, um, uh, all kinds of math and geometry and trigonometry and so on. Anything that was on the, you know, the, the, the school curriculum. And so it took me a while to write it. We rehearsed it. We, the original production had eight people in it, then we had 12 and mixed it up. But I wrote a lot with a guy named Joe Doherty. And Joe is a musician, composer, arranger, and we had never really known each other. And when we met, we gelled. And so Joe and I write stuff all the time together. And we wrote 27 pieces of music for that, that play. It played to 10,000 kids, and now it's being talked about in, in Hollywood. They want to turn it into a film. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. wow. And everybody's going to want to be part of it because it's, it's about math, but it's fun and it's rock and roll and it's a little crazy. And, and uh, you know, we had Cleopatra walking on down a runway with all these girls with her, you know, doing this thing. And, and, the, and it's, it's this kind of, you know, you know, sexy beat, like I'm too sexy. But, and she's saying, I'm Cleopatra and I've got this. And, I've got and it was just like everything we could do to make it silly was great. So music's a big part of my life. It's also something I'm doing professionally. And I'm writing music for an upcoming feature film called The Earthlickers. And it's written by two women. They wrote a Crazy Eight short film, and then they took the premise of it and changed it up. So it's basically about these seven goddesses who are coming to Earth because they've been sent by the oracle of the universe to address the fact that Earth has got all this negativity and anger and stuff, and it's, it's throwing the entire cosmos off. All the wave legs are going off. So they've got to come to Earth and find pockets of love and then exploit them and make them strong. And the, the seven goddesses have pink hair and silver spandex outfits. And it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Barbarella meets, I, I don't know what it meets, but it's, you know, it's a journey of love. And, you know, one of the, one of the goddesses finds a brony convention, you know, and <laughs> they find stuff wherever they, wherever love can happen, you know. And the downloads and the negativity and all the fear is not coming from politicians. It's coming from a giant, uh, you know, like um, empire, uh, you know, like a, a media mogul empire where they're putting downloads of fear and 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 and, and need and 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 so on into people's music downloads. So there's like a Taylor Swift character. And, and her music is where the downloads are going out, and then it sends it off, and it ricochets everywhere. And there's really funny characters in it. It's a really funny script. And I'm writing music and a song for each of the characters, so it'll be like Rocky Horror. And uh, so it's been great fun. So the two that we've done already are, um, one is called um, Lick It With Love, and it's a kind <laughs> of... Yeah, Zach found that funny. Um, <laughs> 
it's uh, it's Donna Summer meets Pink Floyd at Marvin Gaye's house. That's what I call it. And uh, I've got a wonderful singer who sounds like Donna Summer. We've got it's a fun song and it's very catchy. And then there's another guy who's a cross-dressing space alien who's working with the evil dominatrix who's running the empire. And he um, and I was thinking cross-dressing space alien. What can that be? And and I suddenly thought Bowie. It's got to be Bowie. And I had just played David Bowie on a TV show. So I had Bowie on the brain. And uh, so I wrote it in about an hour, channeling all sorts of different things of Bowie. In. And then Joe and I spent six months working that song to take wow. every kind of element we could of Bowie and put it into my song, like, you know, my, what I was writing. And it, we had to stop because Bowie died. And then we thought, well, we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't do it. And we thought, no, we'll do it as an homage. And uh, we've played it for some big uh, industry people and some of whom knew David Bowie and have said he would have loved the song. So that's high praise. And it's a, it's a very, very funny song and it's called Asses to Asses. <laughs> like, all the songs have double entendre and they're naughty and they're kind of funny, but it's a very campy film. And there's been interest from all sorts of people. There's some people from Saturday Night Live and other people are interested in what these two women have written. And uh, Justine Warrington and Alison Araya are the two uh, women who wrote it. And they're just really brilliant, funny female writers who are writing this great, fun comedy. So um, so music is always ever-present for me. And, and I, have a, I had a band here in Vancouver um, called the, the Wreckers and uh, we play rock and roll very much like the food stickers but we have there's a we sadly our drummer just passed away in January Aww, um, I'm so sorry yeah it was pretty sudden he got the flu and the flu was a terrible uh, hard flu and he uh, he passed away Aww. and uh, his name was Jamie Strachan and he was a wonderful exuberant larger than life guy um, but we played because of Jamie, we played on Wreck Beach. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Wreck Beach. Wreck Beach is a famous beach in Vancouver, which is uh, stuck in the 1960s. And it's a, it's, the, it's a clothing optional or nude beach. And you can play, you can go down there, you can be, you can wear clothes or not, but most people don't. And we were the rock band allowed to play down there because nobody was allowed to be amplified. It's all done in the 60s. So Jamie had somehow managed to get them to allow us to play. So. We were the world's first nude rock band. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure there are pictures somewhere on the internet, but, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, and when we played in clubs, we would play with our clothes on, of course. <laughs> so, so music and rock and roll are very, very important to me. And, uh, you know, uh, I've gotten to play a lot of rockers. So John was, John Kane was one of the first that, um, you know, I, I think I did Cold Squad just before that, but, um, you know, it, it, it was a joy to play a very cool character like that. My next question is, uh, you talked about John Cooksey before, so did you get to meet and work with John and Allie Marie Matheson? Oh, very much. They were very hands-on, uh, you know, they were executive producers on the show. Um, as writers, they were available to explain things to you. They were on set every day. And, um, they, you know, and they, you know, they, they were just really great to have around and they're lovely people, you know, um, they also, they wrote a lot of shows for <laughs> and, um, and 
Larry loved working with them. So they wrote a lot of the, the collector, which I played the original devil in. And, uh, um, I don't know if they wrote the dead man's gun, but they were, their hands were in a lot of Larry's work and they're very, very approachable, very intelligent. Both of them is incredible writers. And Ali's father was a famous writer and, uh, but she's a writer in her own right. Like I didn't know that about her dad in so many, many years after I knew her. And, um, and she and John had a great partnership. It was really terrific. Um, they were good check and balance with each other. You know? And uh, I think John went into that a bit in his interview with you. Mm-hmm. you know, um, he, had, he had the maybe the darker nature, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they were, yeah, they were great. And I, I, I've, I consider myself lucky to have gotten to work directly with them. They were terrific. Okay, well, um, you know, you just mentioned this, so I have to ask about this. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yes, you have played David Bowie in a series called Some Assembly Required, and I'm a yeah. huge Bowie fan, so I'm really curious about how you got into that, got that part and got into that headspace. Um, I, it's, it's funny, I, you know, I've played rockers, so there's kind of people in Vancouver know I'm a kind of, you know, reliable rocker guy. And they had written this part, and then they they dropped it, and then they got permission from Bowie's people to do it. And then they said, well, maybe the, but then they knew Bowie was dying. So then they said, you know, don't make it David Bowie. Just call him Bowie and leave it at that and so on. But they wanted somebody who would be reasonable and be able to do it. And um, I had uh, – I was at a fundraiser for – uh, for uh, that a casting director in town had an organization that helped disadvantaged kids and gave them theater training and got them off this, you know out of their disadvantage and put them into plays and things that they could do to it's a wonderful um, uh, it was a wonderful uh, uh, project the limelight project and um, they were doing these interview shows and I had not been interviewed but I was there watching. And then they had a karaoke thing and nobody was getting up and they kept saying, oh, come on, somebody get up and start the karaoke. And one of my friends said, oh, he'll do it, you know. And uh, I can't remember if I did Rebel Rebel or um, Suffragette City, but I did a Bowie song. And literally the next day, the producer of Some Assembly Required, one of the producers, and the casting director called my agent directly and said, we'd like Mackenzie to come in. And it wasn't to audition, it was to play it. It was, it was an offer. And I was staggered because it's always nice when you get an offer and you don't have to go through the nightmare or the torment of the audition. And uh, so they, they did a great job at making me, you know, look like him and play him. And it was a comedy and it was, you know, they wanted it to be close to him, but not exactly that. But then I did, I did a set of photographs and they did a bunch of photographs to, to, for the role. And uh, I put those out, and then sometime later, when Bowie had passed away, there was an, uh, a big um, concert uh, done in his honor. Um, and I was asked if I would do three songs as David, as Bowie, and I did. And they, were, they gave me, well, one of the songs was fairly easy, but they gave me unusual ones that were diff- difficult, like Station to Station and, uh, I can't remember now. Anyway, there's a couple of tricky ones. And uh, so I played it and covered it, and it was from the, the Some Assembly Required. 
And then somebody else asked me if I would do a, a thing where I'd play him, but I turned it down because I didn't like the way they were using it in their film. So, so yeah, so that's how that came about. And I guess you did work with his son, so yeah. as, you, as you've already mentioned. So yes, yes, Duncan was lovely and just a lovely, lovely guy, and um, very graceful, as you would imagine he would be being his father's son. You know, well, so I, I've played quite a few uh, real rockers, and you know, or ones based on real rockers. You know, it's always fun. I was trying to get information to you know when they were shooting uh, vinyl I, before it was. When it was just a hint of a series, I was I was saying to my agent, send Mick Jagger's company, send to New York these pictures of me in all these rock star things. Like, you know, it's all about glam rock. I can do that. And my agent didn't do well, you know, we'll wait until the casting comes out. I said, No, don't wait, send it now. But he didn't. Aw. missed that. I, you know, at, at some point, I'll get to play another decadent glam rocker and I'll be happy, you know? But, <laughs> yeah. In your last episode on So Weird, when we last see John Kane, he no longer has the ability to play guitar and seems to have no interest being involved in Molly's music. What do you think became of John Kane? What kind of career do you think he had after that episode? Well, I, I, you know, he's looking over the bridge and looking at the Mm -hmm. ducks going by and so on. And I remember when we were doing that, I thought, well, what is he thinking? You know, like, what is it? is he content? Is he happy? Because he's alive. And he's got this, you know, mathematical brain going on now because of the heart. And I thought, you know, what would become of a guy like that? Because, you know, he could live on the money from his record royalties and so on. But it was, a, it was a, that's a good question because I wasn't sure if he'd come back in some way or if the music would come back to him, like sense memory. You know, I, I, I left it open. I wasn't sure that, I thought we, we would, probably come back and revisit it. Um, but by the time when they, when Carol left and they re- recast, it was no place for him in that world, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And uh, because we did leave it open-ended, you know, what would happen to John? And I, my own thinking was that he would, uh, he would find a way into music electronically or mathematically, you know, uh-huh. like, you know, be, like I, I don't think he'd be like a techno producer, but, he, but maybe, he would be in some way finding a way to get, you know, things we were just only discovering about then when we shot the series, like algorithms and all that kind of stuff. If, if the mathematical side of it allowed him to get into producing something, I thought that might be somewhere he'd go. You know, That's but he, so cool. You know, that was, that was a thought. But it's also, he was producing videos and doing things like that. There's nothing that would stop him from doing that. But I think it, the idea was that he's, he'd found a piece because he's he's connected with the wife of the man who mm-hmm. gave him the heart, and then he's he's discovered the thing that's tormented him, and so maybe he's just at peace. And I I like to think that the music would come back to him. That was my thought. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, my theory was always that he would combine the persona of Papa Bear and John Kane and open the first Papa John's. But I like your <laughs> answer a lot better. <laughs> well, Papa Bear, you know, I think Papa Bear, he could have had all sorts of, you know, easy businesses with that, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, what do uh, aging rock stars do that don't play anymore? You know, they, they go on reality shows, you know. Yeah. Ozzy Osbourne, right? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I hoped that, I thought that there'd be something tying in the musical side of his, I mean, the mathematical side of his brain that's come that's got him going there but music would come back 
I, I always like to think that as he was watching the water go under the bridge, that that's all water under the bridge and that new water will mm. That was, that, that's what I was hoping. Yeah, it's a good analogy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, well, one of the questions I always ask the people we interview is, have you ever experienced anything supernatural? And if not, what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you? That's a great question. I have experienced many supernatural things. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, anybody who discounts them, I've even seen somebody who was like a diehard, it's all rubbish, it's not true, you know, whatever, saw something happen with me and, and was so freaked out that he had to, he, he was completely nuts for a while. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, so I would just say without going into it, well, I guess I can go into it. I was playing a ghost in a play in Toronto it was an ongoing dinner theater thing where you went down to this old barracks called the Stanley Barracks. And the show was called Officers 1893. And you went into the barracks and then when you stepped into there, you were all you were back in 1893. And there was no acknowledgement of anything modern by any of the characters who were also the servers and the waiters and, and so on. And then there were people who were not servers, but they were just entertainers. And they played parlor games and stuff. And then they, the whole audience would get involved in these, you know, wind up Victorian games where horses would race and they'd do various, you know, various things. And, and um, the ghost, there were two of us who alternated the role of the ghost, um, wonderful actor named Bruce Beaton and I, and we, we wrote the part of the ghost to punctuate and move the, the story of the evening forward. But we thought, you know, we should do this great thing where we'd be behind this two-way mirror and there'd be another actor in the two-way mirror looking like us. And he would be ghosted through and talking, and we would have a voice audio tape of us saying, I am the ghost of you know Arthur Smith or whatever he is, and I was an officer and I was drunk and I fell into the, off the ramparts and into the water and so on, and I should never have died, but I was, you know, I was in the middle of this and whatever. So I come back to see who's in the officer's mess because that's the last place I was. And, you know, it's all this nonsense going on. And they're all watching that way in the room where the mirror has just had a figure appear in it. It was all done through two-way glass and so on. And then as, and, and he starts to laugh, the voiceover starts to laugh and he's saying, you know, we'll have fun and we'll have fun and I'll love to visit you. <laughs> and then I jumped out of a window at the back of the, of the restaurant, of the, of the barracks. They had these big, huge, deep windows that you'd be hidden in. And you'd jump down and go, and here I am! And they'd all die, you know, like, shock and you know it was, a great, it was a great interest because they were all watching there thinking oh it's you know it's mechanical and then boom there he is so we could play great mischief through the night like you could you know a, a waiter would put a fork down and we just pick it up and go in they they'd look as if it was floating away and so on. so there's a lot of great shtick you know going on about being the ghost and you know, I and we we did things we we read the charge of the light brigade we sang songs we did all sorts of stuff. Anyway, I was getting ready for the, the night, and we had to put all this powder on the faces. We were all gray, the two of us who played the ghost. And my father had died uh, just a couple of years before. And I was in a very terrible kind of state at this particular night. I had just broken up with my girlfriend, and it was a big to-do, and I was in a mess, and I didn't really want to be there, but I couldn't get Bruce to step in for me. And I was just... I was a mess, you know, as one is sometimes, you know, of course, we'll break up and so on. And I was just thinking, God, I wish I could 
figure this out. I wish I could get through it and I don't know what to do. And my dad used to always be great for me with I, you know, when I had breakups or anything emotional. He was very good and very solid and he was a great guy. And, you know, he'd, and he'd tell me to laugh, you know, like, you know, you know, you laugh about this in five years. You, of course, you always say, no. You say, well, you probably are. And, you know, why wait? You know? And so, so I was tired and I hadn't slept much and I was putting the makeup on and I yawned. And as I yawned, looking at the reflection, my dad's face came out of my face in the mirror. And he had a nickname for me called Tav. He said, Tav, it's going to be all right. Just mm -hmm. let it go. Have a good time. You're all right. And then I finished the yawn and he came back. And it was back to me. And right at that moment, one of the young guys playing a young officer had been sent back to get me ready so they could stick me in the window where I had to hide. And he said, where, where, where were you? I just called you. Where were you? And I said, Oh, I was just had this crazy experience. Said, no, where were you? You weren't there. You weren't there. I said, no, I've been right here. I'm making up. I've got my makeup in my hand. He said, no, you weren't there. You weren't there. And I went, what do you mean? He said, I was looking at you and you just appeared. Where? And he was completely out of his mind. <laughs> so wherever I went, wherever things happened, and there's no way he couldn't see the mirror, couldn't see anything because there was a little curtain there. I had just disappeared and then came back. And this guy was a diehard guy from the, the the American equivalent would be like, you know, Midwest, like Iowa or someplace, you know, like, you know, like he just didn't believe any of that stuff, you know, cattle country guy. And he was completely freaked out. When I told him what happened, he said, oh, you, you weren't there. And he's like feeling my face. And, I'll, and I said, hey, you know, tell him I'll be out in a few minutes. I, I'll, I need to get ready. And I was getting ready. And then I looked and I was completely made up. So that happened, and you and I had a very special bond after that. Like, you know, we just had kind of a little wink with each other. It was kind of a special bond. So wow. I, I, that's what, I would say that's the strangest phenomenon I've ever had. Um, I've had, I've seen ghosts or believed I've seen ghosts and experienced them in theaters. The theater is a home of ghosts because it's souls flying all over the place and complete whack jobs have lived there and done that, and, you know. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, you know, and to give you an example, because you'll love this one, I was working in a place in Toronto that was, uh, it was, I think it was called the Pauline McGibbon Centre, and she was a lieutenant governor of Canada, of, of Ontario. And there was a theatre that they'd built in, in what was the old, it was down in the old part of Toronto, and it, it was the old courthouse and more. And they'd taken it all, redone it, and they'd made a theatre in there. And everybody who'd been in there doing plays said, it's weird in there. There's weird stuff, you know, whatever. And so I was working with some friends, helping with a show, and they had three microphones facing upstage for the three singers. And, so on. and we locked up, we did the rehearsals, and they said, this is kind of strange. Things keep getting moved and whatever. And so I said, well, maybe they don't like your musical. Maybe the ghosts are, you know, <laughs> they don't like you. And they said, no, 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 you know, it's all fun and games or whatever. And so... The microphones were all facing upstage, and we thought we will go out, have some dinner, and we'll come back. We'll work. So we went and had some dinner, and we came back, and nobody had been there. We had the keys; it was all locked up, and the three microphones were facing the audience, and they were unplugged. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So who knows, you know? But 
you know, I said, have you talked to them and asked them if it's okay if you're, <laughs> if you're in here or whatever? I don't know. Anyway, um, I've experienced some crazy things and uh, I've seen some eerie things and uh, I've gotten, I get sense memory from places, not, not my own memory, but in London especially, I, I felt like I'd been there before. My father used to say, well, maybe you have, you know, yeah. right? Because there'd be places I just knew what they'd be like before I went around the corner, you know? It wasn't deja vu, it was just it was something else. And uh, I don't know, have you ever been in a historical place and you've put your foot on like a mound or something where somebody famously stepped or whatever, and you get a sense, you get an energy from it? And you say, well, maybe, maybe I'm giving it that energy. You know, maybe like, it's like we give people aura, you know? You know, I've met Queen Elizabeth, I've met Prince Charles, I've met Prince Andrew I hung out with. Um, you know, I've met a number of royal figures and they have aura. They have colors coming out of them. You know? mm -hmm. Queen especially, she's only tiny, but she has like energy around it. It's incredible. You know, so we all, we're all energy, mm -hmm. you know, however you want to put it. Even, sci even scientists will tell you that. Yeah. Yeah, my next question is kind of more broad in general. So um, you live in Toronto, not Vancouver, right? I live in Vancouver. Okay. So I was just going to ask, like, what do you like about living in Canada in general? Because I've been to Vancouver a few times, and uh, I really love it there. It's a it's, great vacation spot, scenery, and all that. It's a, it's a very beautiful city. It's um, I'm, you know, I'm from Toronto. It's a very fast city. It's, you know, the New York of Canada, if you like. Um, I lived in London, in the center of London. I lived in the center of Toronto. I like fast cities. I like urban energy. I like that. But I do like a place that's peaceful and so on. And Vancouver isn't really fast. It's not a big, strong urban energy. But it's got seven beaches and mountains and the ocean and the freshest air of any major city I've ever lived in. And it's got lovely people. And... Um, there's, you know, the film industry is amazing here. So in terms of a place to live and work, it's really fantastic. Um, when, I, when I first got here, I thought, oh my God, there's nothing to do. And it's so tired and so, you know, it's kind of quiet. But when, I, when you're on a series and you're working 16 hours a day and in every day, you, you come home and you say, oh, thank God it's quiet. Thank God it's you know, peaceful. And oh, I can go to the beach and just look at the ocean. You know? And so... It's a really great city that way, you know, whereas, you know, in Toronto, it's like, you know, you come home, you go, hey, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? There's so much to do. And uh, so you can exhaust yourself. But it, living in Canada, I think we have a really great de democratic tradition here. We have a great democracy. And I think that we have, for one reason or another, however, it's the proximity to the United States, but they've been one of Great Britain and uh, the native culture is very strong here. Um, we've, we've got a sort of mixture of elements that um, have made a really decent, wonderful country. And, you know, it's not without its problems. And there's certainly things that need to be redressed and addressed. And, you know, uh, colonial history is now being addressed directly. And, we're, you know, we're looking at a lot of things. But we have a pretty decent standard of living and we have a a sense of decency about life. You know, we don't have gun problems the same way. We don't have, we, very few areas are slums. We have a few, but they're, that's more a recent thing, I guess. But 
it, it, it's a pretty safe place and it's a good place. And, and uh, it's also a beautiful country, a stunningly beautiful country. And uh, nature is never far away from any major Canadian city. So we're, we're lucky that way. Right. So, so those are my, that's my, you know, good things about living in Canada. I love the United States too. I, I haven't, uh, haven't been living there. I haven't, I lived in, briefly in LA and I've done, you know, you know, you know small sojourns in New York and, uh, um, and uh, I do love so much about the United States. I think New York's one of the greatest cities in the world. And, you know, uh, there's, I think Americans are the friendliest people on the earth and they, um, it distresses me to see what's been going on lately in the States and all the division. But it, I think it's not incurable. I think, it, I think it's, it's going to take a lot of work, but people will realize that they're all people and we all can get along. You can have difference in opinion. But uh, I do know that whenever I've been in the States, I, people are just so friendly and so, you know, accommodating. And, uh, you know, I've, I've never had a bad time, you know. And I, I spent a lot of time in San Francisco. I directed a play there, and I love San Francisco. It's nutty and kind of weird, and, and uh, but it's also again down to earth and quite lovely, you know. So, so I, here's my love letter to the United States. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so you've actually been involved in several projects that are adapted from comic books, things like Smallville, the Iron Man cartoon, Legion, even Riverdale. Um, do you research these types of roles before playing them? Uh, before I audition for them, usually. Um, and once you get them, you find out what the script wants and what they want. But yeah, I do. Um, you know, we, and it's funny that people say, are you a DC guy or a Marvel guy? I'm, I'm, I'm both. You know, because they've both been good to me. Um, some characters, there's no, there's no history. Like, they, it's created for the TV show, so they're not in the books. But Jaxer was very, in Man of Steel, was hard to research because there's not a lot about him. He was in the original cartoons. But then eventually, if you hit a couple of the real fan sites or the, I don't, know, I don't like to call them geek sites, but, you know, the sites, <laughs> you know, the sites that really, you know, they know everything about every cartoon and comic book. Um, you can get a lot of information and um but then it's really up to what they want you to be in the film you know with um with iron man armored adventures i didn't really know much about obadiah stain but i was given a little primer about it and the marvel people really help you with that and uh you know they didn't want uh, a repetition of who he was in the movies they wanted it to be its own thing but true to what he's supposed to be in the comics so uh you know and uh with uh, Lex Luthor playing that in Smallville, I, they, they wanted me to be as close to Michael Rosenbaum as I could, um, but still make it my own. And I think I did, you know? Uh, but earlier in Smallville, when I played um, the, the doctor, who's Lex's right-hand guy, um, I, that, there was no precedent. It was just, who is this guy? I don't know. He's not in the comic books. And uh, so we just made him who we made him on the spot. Yeah, Dr. Krieg, that was his name. And, uh, and so, so, yeah, I'd have to say uh, I do the research before I go in so I know who they are. But Jack's here was a, tr a tricky one, you know. Okay. So I, so I hit the, the mother load of geek sites, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, how do you find voice acting versus on-screen acting? Oh, it's totally different, but it's, 
you know, A, you don't have to memorize it. So you've got the comfort of the text there, but you've got to be able to lift it off the page and fit. It's tricky because sometimes they'll say, right on the script, not no cartoony voices or no cartoony, not cartoony. And they'll, they want it and they'll say, and they give you a bunch of references. We want it like Family Guy and this guy and that, and whatever. And you go, oh, okay. So you got to kind of figure out what you're going to, how you're going to play it. Um, and then other, other times they'll give you, <laughs> they'll give you character references, you know, and they'll say, I, I kid you not, this is, I'm not making this one up. He's a cross between Steve Carell, Peter O'Toole, Danny DeVito, and George C. Scott. <laughs> and I said, across? Or, they, he said, it could be either or any of those could be sources. I think Steve Carell, Peter O'Toole, Danny DeVito, and George C. Scott. Okay. <laughs> you lost me at hello. Okay. You know, like, you know, but then you got to find the one, you make a choice and you go with it. And, you know, hopefully, you know, don't try and do all five choices in one. You'll kill yourself, you know? <laughs> I, I can't imagine doing all those voices in one. Yeah, it's, it would be hard to find four actors that are more different than those. Well, exactly. And so sometimes you get these references in this, because writers have said, well, he's got a bit of this, it's got a bit of that, and so they just give you that as a reference. But I, I love the work, and I love in a good room, you know, when you everyone's on it, because we can look at each other and we can have fun, and, you know, there's, there's a bit of kibitzing that goes on, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's much more relaxed, you know, even as a, a director who might be, you know, tough on you or wants it a certain way, you know, it's, it's more relaxed and it, it you know, it, it's, it, it's great to be around other people who do really great voices because it makes you raise your own bar, you know, and I have, I think I have a fairly distinct voice. So they, they don't give me the incidental parts very often. You know, there, there's some, some guys make a fortune because they'll say, Oh, uh, you know, so and so, can you uh, can you play the, uh, the the night watchman? Oh yeah, and he'll go into some high voice like this, whatever you know. And they can do that, you know, and then he'll be another guy saying, "I'm Mr. Smooth, I'm this guy, whatever." And they they go to me, and I try and do that voice. And they go, "Mac, you just sound like you." you know? <laughs> <laughs> I say, "No, I don't." And they go, "Yes, you do." You know, <laughs> you know whatever. Uh, I I do get them from time to time, but it's got to be something really quite different. You know? But it's great fun. The voice work is terrific, you know. And uh, it's always funny when you see the cartoon because you don't see them. Well, it's prelay; you don't see them. You, you see them when it's when it's uh, dubbing. But prelay, you lay down the voice, and then they do the animation after you. And so it's always funny when you see it because you, you may not think you you didn't voice it with that drawing in mind. You know, sometimes they give you the the drawing of how it's going to look. I'll say this is this character, but it's it's a still drawing. It doesn't show you what he's going to do. You know, I, I did um, Stargate. I don't know if you know about Stargate, but they had a Stargate had an animation series, and I played Pakal, who's this. I, I, I just thought he and I and and Mark Mark. Um, oh God, the, the other guy who played I, we played these three bad guys. Um, they we were all talking like this and being rough and hard. <laughs> and, and, and we were essentially dinosaurs, like we were a big monster thing. It's like really, okay, you know, and no idea that that's what we looked like, you know. And you know, and it's so it's funny when you see it in the end, you know. My Little Pony, I played Dandy Grandeur, who's an interior decorator, and when I, and, and and 
you know, they wanted him slightly, you know, gay and a little fay. Um, and they, they, so I, I did it, but I made him more flamboyant than anything. And uh, when I saw the drawings, and his hair swept back, and he had a little mustache, and he looked like my dad, who was an interior. <laughs> I just thought, oh, it's too funny. It's hilarious, you know. They've made him look like my dad, but I'm doing all camping. <laughs> so, you know, so you never know. But it's great to answer your question. I love doing it. It's 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 totally different than film acting. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is one of my favorite questions to ask an actor about their character. If you had to pick one song that captures the spirit of John Kane, what would it be? Oh boy, that's a good one. Uh, one song captures the spirit of John Kane. I think it'd be something kind of wild and rambunctious and showy. Uh, you know, um, I think so something by Led Zeppelin, you know. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. One song. Yeah. I'm thinking of a Zeppelin song that would fit his kind of craziness. Maybe trampled underfoot, or because uh, he, 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 he's such a wild man, right? You know, so he was a wild man. In terms of capturing the character that he is, uh, that he's become as Papa Bear, mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of reflection there. So I, I could say, um, the Beatles in my life might be a good one. Um, I love that song. Yeah. There are places I'll remember all my life, though some have been. You know, it's, it's it's very reflective, and I think there's there's a there's a kind of bit of John Lennon in in him as well. Yeah. You know, um, but uh, that's a good question. But yeah, I think for his spirit, as the old John Kane, like the wild man, you know. Um, you know, I think there's, I'd say in the Led Zeppelin oeuvre would be would be great. You know, you could say wild thing, but I think that's too that's too stodgy. I don't think. <laughs> and I say that not knocking wild thing. It's a great song. You know, maybe maybe you really got me by by Van Halen. You know, that could also you know mm -hmm. that could be a Don Kane song. You know. All right. Um, we've got some questions from some other fans now. Here's yeah. one from, yeah, from Lauren on Facebook. Can you, uh, she wants to know if you have any theories on what Papa Bear was building in the second episode you were in, Transplant. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Um, I asked them what it was, <laughs> and they said it was kind of like um, a, a brain, like a, it was to be an advanced thinking unit um, or it even could be a medical thing like a heart or something but the idea was that it was a, an advanced thinking unit that was going to um, you know overtake computers and things like that so and we've probably invented it now you know for real right you know? but, but Lauren that's a good question but uh, I asked them and they couldn't tell me <laughs> we forgot to ask John about it oh yeah he could tell you he could tell you but I, I think it was meant to be an advanced thinking, you know, connection. Like, you know, if you build a computer out of nothing, you know, and built it, you know, made made it conceptual, and it had all these, you know, it, it was definitely a, a mathematical genius's connection to being a kinetic machine. Mm -hmm. I think that's it. It was supposed to be a perpetual motion machine or pre something perpetual in it. From on Twitter, from Princess Fernandez, she just wanted to say that she loved. 
Papa Bear's relationship with the Phillips family, especially in relation to Fee and Rick. And she wished she got to see more of him. I wish they had too. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy, he's another host on our podcast, but he was yes. busy tonight. He asks, uh, you've acted in hundreds of projects, produced, directed, and even written on some projects. Is there any area of the industry you still aspire to be a part of? Any goals you still wish to achieve? Um, yeah, I, I would really like to score a film. I've, I've done some scoring for small parts of films, but I'd really love to, to score a movie, like to do the, the entire soundtrack for it. Um, not the sound design, but the soundtrack. And uh, i that's part of what Earthlickers is about, is writing the songs for stuff. But I really love to score a film. I think it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And, you know, as Louis B. Mayer said, uh, the best music in a film is the music you don't hear. And that means it's it's in your heart, it's underneath you. You don't know it's there, but it's there. And I, that would be a, a, something to that I'd love to do. You know, score a film. Good question, Jimmy. Oh, they're all good questions, actually. Well, I've got one more question here, and um, I've noticed that you're in the upcoming remake of Rabbit, directed by the Soska sisters, yes. and I'm intrigued by how much you can tell us about that. I can tell you a bit about it. First of all, I can tell you they are an amazing team. They, this Jen and Sylvia Soska are um, amazing women, and I love them dearly, and they are... Uh, gifted and smart and sensitive and they know what they want and they're building a career and they've done it against all sorts of odds and I can't speak highly enough about them to begin with. Secondly, the fact that, you know, Cronenberg has never liked remakes of his films, he never approved any, and when he found that they were involved and he turned it down before and then saw what they were writing, he said yes. So they have Cronenberg's blessings on the film. And it's it's a reinvention of it. It's not like oh we're you know like not like we're going to redo the old movie. It's it's been updated and it's been uh, adapted for the sort of modern um, you know modern uh, current genome research and everything else. Um, it's got a splendid cast, you know, led by Laura Vandervoort, uh, who is uh, amazing in the role. And um, it's got just some wonderful stuff going on. So I can tell you that it's it's been updated in so that it's it's less. Uh, I don't know it, the the spread of the rabies, which is not really rabies, is done somewhat differently in this, and it's all centered around the fashion industry. So it it goes into the concept of the fashion industry as the idea of creating a false perfection. And the, the lead character, she is um, Laura's character. She has scars and issues from a, a disfigurement in an accident that she covers up and hides. And she works for me. I, I play Gunther, who's a German fashion designer, who actually wears his scar proudly, but has uh, the idea of a you know, perfect beauty in his line. And he's launching a new line called Schadenfreude, and, uh, which is great. And um, and uh, um, at any rate, she is in an industry that demands perfection, but demands, you know, extremism and ex it demands volatility and so on. And yet she's, when she is, has another accident and is disfigured further, then she's given an, uh, medical treatments that are to 
restore her beauty and restore her, her, her face and so on. And this is where these experiments go wrong and lead us into the, the, the rabid tale. Um, and so it's interesting setting it in the fashion industry because, you know, it, 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 it's just a perfect place to reinvent that film. And uh, that's part of the genius of the Soska twins. And um, so I play Gunther and uh, I have a very different look. In fact, if you give me a second, I'll show you a picture. Okay. I'll send you one, but it's going to be really great. And they've got some stuff you've never seen on film before. Some special effects that are just extraordinary right, from the Todd Master Studio. And um, they, uh, it, it's going to knock you out. Um, I'll show you a picture of me as Gunter here. Um, because they decided that they wanted Gunter to uh, look like he'd had face work done, like that he'd had the perfection done but he kept his scar and then he's kept youthful and he dyes his hair and so on. So basically I took a lot of Gunther from Karl Lagerfeld who I've met, but who I watched interviews with to get the sense of him, but we made him look totally different. There was no attempt to be Lagerfeld. He's, you know, he's it, like, they gave me a facelift with these things that they put under the wig and under the hair. And then they airbrushed my face and, uh, and uh, did very, you know, very cool stuff that, Thank God, like made me look so much younger. I didn't want to, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, at any rate, uh, but I had and I had an assistant. Here's a little little snippet for you. The girl who plays my assistant, uh, uh, and I won't say her name because it's kind of cool in the film. But uh, she uh, was really good at playing that kind of bitchy, edgy thing. Who's like the 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 tough face of my my character. And it turns out that one, I, I talked to her and I said, you know your stuff well. And she said, well, I do. My dad's a fashion designer. Her dad's one of the top haute couture designers in Canada and the world. And she has, wants to be an actress and she's studying to be an actress. She's becoming an actress, but she knows that world very well. So I would say, well, if I did this to you, would that be out of line? So, oh, no, no, that's, not, like, that's tame compared to what designers do and so on. So she was a great reference for me. To, uh, to do outrageous things as Gunther, you know, or even mildly outrageous things. But we also, the, the Soskas let me ad-lib certain things in, uh, in uh, some press interviews that we did. So the other actors had to be on their toes because they didn't know what I'd be saying. And, uh, but the rest of the, the, the film, it's, it's just superbly acted. She's got a wonderful cast. And uh, as I said, Laura is, is really brilliant. And um, yeah, everyone's, it, it, it's going to be a great film. Yeah. If you're a horror fan, you're going to love it. Well, I'm a fan of the Sosko's previous movies, and I, when I heard they were remaking Rabbit, I thought, oh, that sounds perfect. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, it's coming out very soon. It's just got distribution in Europe and Germany, and now it's getting some in the States. And so it's going to be out very, very soon. So Great. Make sure you go, everybody go it's see amazing. it. Go <laughs> see it. <laughs> it's very scary. It sounds amazing. So now, I have one last general question about So Weird for you. What yes. are some of your favorite memories about working on the show? Um, uh, just the, being on set, the camaraderie, the directors were wonderful directors that I got to work with, and you know, Larry Sugar being around, and Ali and John, certainly. Um, Mackenzie Phillips was lovely to work with. I really, really loved her. And so was Kara, you know, like that's the people I had the most to do with. And uh, 
and Patrick was lovely, you know. And I think that, um, you know, uh, it, just the, the feel on the set was very good and a lot of fun. The costume and hair, and everybody, it was a whole team of people, and they were a good family. And I think, I guess, uh, happy memories, you know, like hanging out with Squatch, you know, just chatting with him and, and with Belinda, Belinda Metz. You know, I didn't have scenes with them, but they were around when we were shooting, and we all got to know each other a little better. And uh, I just say it was a, just a very happy family, and it was it was lovely to go to work, you know, and, and play a cool character, you know. Um, and uh, I, I really got along with Kara very well. And, uh, um, you know, that that scene is still, as I said, one of my favorite scenes that I've ever done. You know, it's uh, just very special. And, I love um, that scene. Yeah, it was, it was a lovely one to be given. And I, I thank John and Ali for writing it and uh, you know, letting, me, letting me play it, you know? And uh, yeah, it was a great character. So I guess, you know, just a happy shooting environment was what I really loved about it, you know? And uh, just, that was, it was special, I don't know. Yeah, I'm always blown away because every time we talk to somebody from So Weird, they always talk about what a wonderful experience it was and how great everybody on set was. Yeah, they were. It was a, it was a very special team. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I don't know what happened with the last season, you know, because I wasn't there for that. But I imagine it was the same people and trying to make, make it work and uh, make it happen. And uh, never heard anything bad from it. So... Uh, but you know, it was a big thing to lose Kara, you know, so, yeah. you know, but, uh, um, and, uh, you know, I didn't stay in touch with her. I, I, I thought we would at first we were emailing a bit, but then I, I lost touch with her and I don't actually know what she's doing right now. I know she's still acting and still doing things, but you know, it'd be great if you could get her on your show or have you had her on the show? No. Well, if she changes her mind, I think you'd be, you know, have a lot of good, you know, interview stuff with her, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was just a very happy, happy place to be. I think those are all the questions that we had. And um, I like to end it off with these two general questions. Like, we always hope that maybe the show will get back on air or maybe there'll be a reboot since everything's being rebooted. Yeah. Um, so the question I'd like to ask is, um, if it were to come back, would you like to come back as the role of John Kane? Oh, absolutely. See where he's gone, you know, like, yeah. you know, maybe he's become like Sir Richard Branson or something, you know, like, <laughs> you know, running an airline and, uh, you know, like it could be anything. There'd be a lot of potential in having him, you know, I'm still here, you know, so, uh, you know, it'd be great to have uh, Papa, Papa Bear come back, you know? And, um, you know, and, and who knows, it could be, you know, Mackenzie's around, everyone's still around, you know, so. You know. Yeah, um, everyone that we've asked so far always says yes, but of course it's not, it's not up to you guys, it's Disney yeah. or whoever. Well, I'd, I'd come running, you can let them know. <laughs> no, I'd, no, I'd be there, bells <laughs> on. I'll leave you a funny story that is unique to, this show and Larry Sugar and all that. I did a show sometime after So Weird uh, called uh, First Wave. And I played the head of all the aliens. It's about aliens who come to Earth and they they look like humans. They've got husks that are made so they can fill human bodies. And it's about the takeover of Earth by a kind of insidious revolution, you know. And um, it had uh, lots of great 
regular players on it. And uh, um, I was the guest star for playing the head of the audience who's come down to wonder why we keep losing so many operatives to human emotion and sex and all these other things. So I'm basically come down and go, what's going on? And so to see what it's all about, they, they set me up with, uh, with a husk. So I learned about what sex is, you know, and, and, and it was very graphic, sexy and shot for the show. And they, you know, they had the German version which showed everything. And then they had the American version which showed nothing. And oh. the cable version which showed the little bums and stuff like that, whatever. And uh, so I did an interview in the newspaper about that. I just played uh, another rock star on something else. And I had just done, first wave where I did all these sex scenes and these graphic sex scenes and I was still on So Weird playing John Kane. And it was an innocuous, you know, comment in the uh, interview. And so Larry Sugar called me up and told me to come down to his office. And I thought, oh, you see the press. I said, is this about the article? I said, you bet it is. And I thought, oh, and Larry's always, he loves good press and loves stuff. And it was all singing the praises. So. I go to his office and he holds up the he holds up the newspaper like this. He said, "Really?" <laughs> he, said, he said, "Oh, you know, it's like you know, I'm playing rock stars now, and I'm you know, playing decadent rock stars, and I'm playing doing sex scenes, and I'm doing all this, and you know, and I got none of these things when I was a young man and should have been doing it. I'm doing it in my forties." Uh -huh. He said, "Really? Are you kidding me?" I said, "Well," he said. Putting sex scenes from uh, from uh, first wave in the same sentence is so weird. They're Disney. Do you understand? Disney. I said. I, I said. I, like I can't imagine how stupid or move. I said. Hey. Hey. Woo. Hey. I said. Listen. He just asked me about stuff, and I like. You know. I didn't know that we were. You know. I had to be careful. I said. He said. No. Really. Do you know what Disney's going to say about this? I said. What? He says. Good press. <laughs> he went to all that trouble to make a practical joke wow. which larry was famous for he played practical jokes on everybody <laughs> all the time he loved playing practical jokes i said so i'm okay he said it's fine and he said okay that's yeah, fine great no it's a great article it's good good stuff thanks for mentioning the show it's great and I, so, so, so as i walk out and i get to the edge of the door he says don't let it happen again <laughs> I could never figure it out. And, you know, a week later, he called me and said, so you got any more articles? You know, you can make sure you talk about the show. So, so, you know, that was working for Larry was always, you know, keep you on your toes. But he was, you know, always great. But that was, that was, you know, that I mentioned all the, the stuff next to So Weird was just, I hadn't even thought about it. But, yeah. Anyway, Disney's hired me since then, so it's all been fun. So the, the last question for the night is, uh, what are your thoughts about how So Weird still has many passionate fans who still talk about the show? And is there anything you want to say to all the fans? Well, I don't think it's a surprise that there's all the fans because it was a great show. And I think it had, it, you know, for a, ch a kid's show or a show for teens, it was remarkably uh, thoughtful and provocative. And I think it also had dealt with issues of the loss of her father and about the, you know, Molly's drinking problems and, the, and expectations of a teenage you know, girl and somebody who's tapped into supernatural and other things they don't understand. I mean, it was really a mature series for kids. And those kids have grown up and there's a fond memory of what it might have been for them. And I think that 
as people, have, it's in reruns somewhere, you know, that people find it and they, it didn't date itself particularly. I mean, it does have some things, maybe some of the clothing and stuff, but the themes don't. It's like Goosebumps, the old Goosebumps, is always watchable, you know, and because they were well written and well done. And so I, it doesn't surprise me that there's a big fan base and that they'd like to see more. And I think that um, to the fans, I just say, you're great. You're fantastic. And thank you for staying with the show. And thank you for your interest. And thanks for loving it. You know, it, it keeps it alive and keeps us alive. You know, we're, as actors, we can fade away and we, you know, can go through periods where we're not working or we don't get the attention or whatever. And when you're on a show that people still want to see, it keeps you alive too. So it's a really lovely thing that you do that and uh, keep us alive. And, uh, you know, it, it also, we know that you'll probably say, oh, I didn't know he was in that. So I'll go see him and I'll see her in that and whatever. Okay. So it, it's all good. And uh, I, I hope if they do a reboot that we can all come back and make it special and uh, have a great time. And if it doesn't, then what's there is really fantastic. Okay. You know, so uh, thank you for, thank you for being fans. Thank you for, for being there for the show. Well, and thank you so much for being with us, Mackenzie. It's been a really fascinating, funny interview. Well, my pleasure. My pleasure. I hope we kept it lively. You know, so, you know. Thank, yeah, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. You did a wonderful interview. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Great stuff. Thank you. Thank you.